Nakia Brown versus Braxton King announced last week. They'll be fighting November 21st. That's the same card that'll be headlined by our guy, John Island, taking on Brandon the Killer B. Davis. It's a great fight, Nakia versus Braxton. Dude, Braxton looked sensational in uh, his last outing with Atlas. Oh, he absolutely did. And then on the other token, I think it's kind of come and pushed a shove for Nakia. Like, uh, he didn't have the greatest outing last week when he fought Cam Teague yep. over on Empire. I mean, he got put to sleep. And I think it's going to be a good fight for him, Nakia. I mean, I think Nakia's a f phenomenal fighter. He's a yeah. wonderful fighter. So I think that he should be able to shake off the cobwebs and come back with a very tough test in Braxton King. Yeah. Coming out of Jaggernut MMA uh, over there with Lang Williamson, a very tough, knowledgeable coach. Mm -hmm. Braxton always seems on. I yep. mean – I think it's going to be a good fight, good scrap. Yeah, I would say Braxton uh, probably going to be a bit more competition than uh, Cam was even. Braxton is. Oh, if, he's if you ask around, super athletic. If you ask around, a lot of people are putting him up there as like one of the guys to watch, and rightfully so. So I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, the adjustments that Nakia is making between last fight and Braxton because I'm assuming it's going to be much tougher competition for him. Absolutely. But speaking of Cam T, I recently started following this dude on Instagram. Right. And he is hilarious. He had his sugar shame pose with his double title belt saying big news coming soon. Uh, but I've heard uh, Justin Juno told me he's going to be fighting for the amateur 155 title. So maybe Cam T will be stepping in against old Justin Juno, which that'll be a big step up in competition for Cam T as well because Justin fought on that Empire card. And or uh, Jordan Juno. Yeah. Jordan Juno. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. No, Jordan Jordan Juno fought on that card as well. And he looked phenomenal coming out of Mid-City, uh, especially with the last-minute opponent replacement. So yeah. that was a big thing for me. I think uh, Jordan told me they switched his opponent multiple times. But he was game and ready to go and shows. Some other local fight announcements. Ethan Hughes, who fought yep. on that last card, versus Douglas Freeman, just announced for Empire Fighting Championship amateur welterweight title uh that's going to be on december 19th the same card that jason knight plans to make his mma return and hughes is three and oh taking on freeman who's two and oh not bad for a guy who's coming off an acl injury boy. yeah right you he got looked it. good he looked yeah. real good so that card again december 19th same card jason knight's making his return to mma jason knight still a phenomenal record right he's 20 and 6 he had four ufc wins before dropping four straight and getting cut i mean 20 and six with four consecutive losses, right? So, I mean, like, he's still up there with one of the, the best records around. Absolutely. And he's only 28 years old. Young man. Yeah. So, he's got a lot of potential, not to mention Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship's biggest star right now. Yep. I'm Jeffrey Hoffman. This is Nikki the G, Nicholas Sherlock, welcoming you guys to the 11th episode of the Fight Sport Focus podcast. Already at 11, man. Oh, yeah. It seems like just yesterday we were going, hey, you want to start a podcast? <laughs> I mean, we, we we love the support from you guys. So many fighters reaching out, wanting to be a part, wanting to be interviewed. And guys, we're going to get to you all. It's just we're a two-man team here. We're, uh, we're slowly be getting through it. But uh, tonight's episode is going to be a little different, switching gears a little bit. Going to get a guy who's more behind the scenes. And uh, the legend himself, Myron Godet, will be joining us here tonight to talk about some different things other than, Hey, I have a fight coming up. So real interested to uh, pick his brain a little bit. This man has been in the sport longer than I've been alive. Yeah. And, uh, amongst other things, many other things, Myron's a MMA referee here in Louisiana. And I know uh, last time the UFC was in new Orleans, he got to ref a bunch of those matches. Yep. Um, so, and, and that's one of the, uh, 
Myron's many, many, many talents and, uh, and, yeah, he's and refed, side hustles and side things that he does. He's Bellator. He refed uh, PFL when it was here. Uh, he's refed the who's who of big shows. He's also been uh, worked on a task force of the United Nations that we'll get into when he was here. He's been in law enforcement a very long time, very knowledgeable about combat sports, what it is, what it isn't, and what you should prepare for. Great. So this week's episode... We're going to have Myron Godet on. We're also going to look back at our picks from the main card, UFC 254, Khabib versus Gaethje, which happened on Saturday. That was a great card with a great main event. And lastly, we're going to look ahead to UFC Fight Night Hall versus Silva, look at the main card and give our picks. Those fights happening this Saturday, which happens to be Halloween. Nick, I know you got a bunch of kids, various ages. What's going on uh, Halloween, man? You guys trick-or-treating? So You're going to stay gonna home be, and dish out the candy? Well, we're not dishing out nothing because, I mean, I think, like, trick-or-treating in itself, like, I think some neighborhoods, like, you still can't do it or whatever. Uh, but I have, a, I have an inside track to a gated community that's saying, hey, we're going to get it done. So this gated, so, this yeah. gated community, they're going to be actually, like, you knock and they give? Oh, Are yeah. you expecting, like, buckets out with the please take one? I mean, I hope it's the please take one buckets because those are the best. Those are the like, oh, yeah, we're going to take one. All right. All right. Tell me about the candy distribution at the old Sherlock household. I mean, what kind of parent are you? Are you the type of parent that, that says, hey, child, this is the spoils of victory. Take it to your room and indulge at your convenience. You the type of parent that locks it in the cupboard, you know, and you dish out what you think they need when they need it while you're so, just filling your face when they're not looking, I mean, what's... Well, I personally, I'm not really... I'm backing off the sweets. I'm currently losing weight. Uh, down about 10 pounds since last week alone, you know. Mm. Pat yourself on the back, old Nikki G. That, that dark energy. Oh, yeah. That, that, that'll kill you. <laughs> like, oh, if Jeffrey Hoffman ever says, here, take this drink. I'm going to post a video on Instagram and tag the Fight Sports Focus page in it uh, where he almost killed me, giving me this weird black market pre-workout. But that's a different story. Uh Number one pre pre workout in the game, baby. For like, a reason, <laughs> like you said, uh, I have kids of different age groups. I'm an older kids. I mean, dude, 16 years old. Do what you will, man. But my six year old, you know, I can't give her a bag of candy because she's gonna get diabetes. <laughs> I have to. Uh, you have to ration that shit. Like, get you a handful and bug her on. All right, man. Interesting to see what uh, parents are doing. As I'm on that bubble uh, on the outside looking in. Let's look at UFC 254 Khabib versus Gaethje, the main card, Nick. You went three and three, a, a modest 500 performance. And uh, I'm not one to brag. You know, I, I, I kind of am one to brag, particularly in this situation. I, I was close to an absolutely perfect card, man. I went, look, look, six and zero on the picks, six and zero on the method of victory. That's hard. You know, it, well, it's going to be a decision. You were in the zone. Sub, even submissions. You were like Knock reminiscent guys. of like a young McGregor, man. Start calling you Mystic Jeff. The Mystic. <laughs> Only fight. Okay, so also, okay, 6-0 and in the picks, 6-0 and in method of victory, 5-1 and on the round that the fight would end. The only one that I missed was Ankalaya versus Kute Laba. I picked the second round, KO and Kute Laba uh, got ended, got finished late in the first, like 30 seconds left in the round. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is that first fight, dude, you got to stop calling yourself the Hulk if you're getting <laughs> smashed in the first round. Like, the Hulk doesn't get slept, especially with all the antics that were going on, him yeah. like almost... Well, then the pre- Talking to Cudi Laba, who's yeah, Cudi Laba on, on the pre-fight, he almost walked completely to the other side of the cage to get in his face. Yeah, and then go out there and get slept like that. 
Oh, you got to calm down a little bit, man. Yeah, so their first match matchup was mired with controversy. Yep. This one, no controversy to be had, right? Like the score is settled. You and I both went with Ankalaev, uh, who was the sizable betting favorite, and he did he everything good. he needed to do. Oh, hell yeah. He, he looked real good. I think he served an announcement to that division, like, I'm here, I'm mm -hmm. ready to fight. And he said in his post-fight interview that uh, he sustained no damage. He's ready to go as soon as they're ready. He said he never. he's always in training camp. He's ready to go at a moment's notice. And you're seeing that a resurgence with these young guys, these new faces. They are always ready. And that shows us how the sports evolved, where it used to be like, oh, God needs an eight-week training camp and things like that, which they, you still get that sometimes. But if you're training in your camp all the time, this is why I'm such a big fan of the same-day weigh-in. Because yep. I think you should fight around your natural weight so you're not cutting 20, 30 pounds to make this weight cut. Also, the UFC getting international, getting a lot of guys from Russia and other places that are hungry, yep. right? And that they're not satisfied with with just one fight they've got they want money and they've got something to prove right and uh i think that's a huge move for the ufc uncle i have now on a five fight win streak next up lauren murphy extended her ufc win streak to four as she subbed lilia shakarova in her ufc debut i went with murphy with murphy who was the favorite entering in fight week nick you had shakarova after the fight uh murphy called for the next title shot she was the number five ranked women's flyweight entering this weekend. The champion, of course, Valentina Shevchenko. She's scheduled to take on Jennifer Maya at UFC 255 on November 21st. Here's the kicker. Jessica Andrade, after absolutely dismantling Caitlin Chukagian in a return to flyweight two weeks ago, she's already the number one contender in the rankings. And we talked about this. I don't think Murphy stands a chance against either Shevchenko no. or Andrade. No, she won that fight, but she didn't look good doing it. But she won. Yeah. I and mean, she had a she had a whole lot to say after it was over. But it's like, you're number five. You're going to have to get in line. I think she's probably two fights away. Like, she might have to fight, like, the number four, number three gal. And then maybe get the winner of the champion. I think if Shevchenko wins, she doesn't get that fight at all. Yeah, I think the matchup that makes the most sense to me, not just for the division, but also in terms of the biggest uh, the biggest matchup, the best fight, the moneymaker, it's Shevchenko versus Andrade. And, of course, that's under the presumption that Shevchenko gets it done against Jennifer Maya, which for all think, intents and purposes. I think Shevchenko beats, beats Maya, and then I also think uh, Shevchenko beats Andrade. Yeah, but it'll be a great fight in the process, right? Probably go to a decision and uh, – both girls. Possibly, possibly. Shevchenko has the ability to, to end the fight of course. at any moment. Of course. Andrade, as tough as they come, right. as strong as they come, I think it goes to a decision. They're both a little bit busted up, and Andrade is definitely wearing that fight uh, more than what Shevchenko will be. Third up on that card, making his UFC debut, we had Phil Hawes. And uh, he had a lot of hype coming oh, into this one. Boy, I, I called that one right. I knew I, yeah. that, that young the man. The first round knockout, right? If uh, you went anything other than first round knockout, seconds. you fucked up. Yeah, and look, a lot of hype coming into this fight, and in those 18 seconds that the fight lasted, he lived up to every ounce of the hype that he had. Yet another first-round knockout for Hawes on a five-fight win streak now, consisting of four first-round finishes in that five-fight win streak. And I think it's safe to say that uh, UFC middleweight division, we've talked about it before, that it's kind of thin up top. Welcome, Phil Hawes. Yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. In the fourth act, uh, Alexander Volkov got it done against Walt Harris. Nasty, nasty front kick to the stomach. Dude, I love a body shot knockout, right? You and I, you had Harris. I went with Volkov, who was the favorite uh, thus far on the card. Dude, betting favorites were getting it done 
right? right? Uh, even on the prelim, early prelim cards, betting favorites won almost all of them. I think Whitaker, the only underdog to uh, win on the card, and he was just a very slight underdog as a yeah, fight. Whitaker, I mean, ro- rolling, rolling right into that next fight. I mean, Whitaker versus Cannoneer. I mean, Whitaker just, oh, man, striking was on display. He was ready to go. He delivered yeah. it. He delivered another masterful performance. And I think that's clearly Izzy's next fight. I mean, if Izzy, unless he's going to keep chirping about a man he has no intention of fighting. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's kind of sad for Izzy. Do you want to fight Whitaker or do you want to move up and fight John Jones? Yeah. That's kind of what you got. I think now it's, it's said it's set in stone that Izzy has to go after Bobby Knuckles. He's got to give Robert Whitaker the rematch. He right. either has to do that or he's going to have to say, oh, I'll fight John Jones because those are the only two fights that they're going to make for him right now. Yeah. Who do you want? How do you think that rematch ends between uh, Izzy and Robert Whitaker? Izzy sleeps him again. Yeah. First fight, it wasn't even close. And you're Izzy- always hesitant about giving the rematch when the fight is that one-sided. But in this situation, Izzy called out Jared Cannonier as the next guy up as long as he beat Robert Whitaker. Mm-hmm. And the way that Whitaker performs, you got to give him the shot again. But Izzy even tweeted, he goes, well... Well, Jared, I mean, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, and just like you said, I don't think that the rematch ends any differently than no. the first one. As much as I don't like Izzy, that's he, he's he's the guy. He's the king at 185, and I think no one can beat him at 185. Yeah. He's either, he's either going to have to eventually move up or just continue to dominate. Well, we've got two interesting prospects who should be up there pretty soon, right? And that's Kamzat Chemaev, who's fighting both 170 and 185, and Phil Hawes, man. Let's, let's give him a couple other fights and see because 185, uh, a little bit thin right now. Main event. Main event. Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Justin Gaethje. Another dominant performance by Nurmagomedov. Yep. Second round submission. We talked about this on last week's episode. I thought, I thought Habib lost the first round. A lot of people th- yeah. thought that he won. I thought he lost. I thought Justin was tearing his leg up, landing some shots, landing some exchanges, defended some takedowns. Habib did get a takedown, but Justin got up. Yeah. And he got he, right up. And he was landing shots. I think the constant pressure of in his face, not giving Justin a chance to step back and set up those shots. I mean, it happened. Khabib went down. Khabib yeah. put him in a triangle, put him to sleep. I mean, referee was very slow because Justin tapped two different times. Desperately and, tapping, too. And like the ref let tapping. him go to sleep. So The judges' scorecards were actually released, and okay. two out of the three judges gave Justin round uh, the first round, 10 and 9. One of the judges did give it to Khabib, to Khabib 10 9. That was the guy on the payroll. <laughs> Could be, but our guest is actually knocking on the door. Yeah, so, let's get uh, let's, let's take get, a break real quick, and uh, we can be right back. Yeah, let's get Myron in here. Jeffrey Hoffman here with Nicholas Sherlock, welcoming Myron Godet to the Fight Sport Focus podcast. Myron, welcome. Glad to be here. here. Absolutely glad to be here. First in-studio guest, we might add. Nice studio. Absolutely. Great setup. I love it. I'm Uh, glad to be here. All right. So we were just talking about main event for UFC 254. Mm -hmm. Khabib Nurmagomedov got it done against Justin Mm -hmm. Gaethje. And Nurmagomedov, look, 29-0, announced his retirement from mixed martial arts Let's talk about that. Khabib's career, right? His impact on MMA and the UFC. So he and re- what he leaves, you know, behind in the wake of this retirement. He announces his retirement, but we got to understand like 29 and 0. Yeah. He's only had what? How many fights he said in the UFC? 13? 13 and 0 in the UFC. 13 and 0 in the mm-hmm. UFC cuz those fights in Russia, he was fighting nobodies. I mean, does that shit really count? And then so then when you go break down his 13 and 0 in the UFC, he's had three title defenses. 
He's only defeated one former champion, delivered no rematches whatsoever. And in the the world of champ champs, where people are going up and down divisions, he didn't even clean out the 155 division. So to say he's pound for pound, the number one fighter in the world is asinine. John Jones is 15-0 and 0 in title defenses alone. Yeah. So Khabib announcing his retirement. So a lot of greatest of all time, a lot of goat talk going on out there. And he's, people, he's on he's on uh, UFC. Put him as the number one pound for pound fighter. In the number world one pound for website. pound right now because John Jones yep. isn't fighting. He doesn't have anything mm-hmm. scheduled. Well, Maybe they got, they got Bones as number. They got Bones as number two. Uh, he yeah. surpassed him. Yeah, well, that's why he surpassed. I don't him, know if right? I agree with that. I yeah. definitely, I don't think I agree with that. I mean, John Jones hasn't lost, yeah. right? right? Like you can't. <laughs> You can't replace John Jones if he hasn't lost because mm-hmm. he has done nothing to be uh, surpassed Khabib, as the number one Khabib's pound beat some great fighters, but if you look at John Jones's rise to fame, right, the people he beat and how he beat them, and the time he beat them as well, right, that, and then he beat that them multiple times. Now, yeah. I'll, I'll add this about that though. I mean, do you really think that there is a such thing as pound for pound greatest fighter? Because if you really look at the sport, I mean, John Jones aside, I agree. John Jones is probably, if I had to make a pick, I would go with John Jones. But at the same time, if you look at fighters, different fighters match up differently against other fighters. It's sort of like in the NFL. You might have a great team that matches up well against other teams, but then they might have a really crappy team that beats that team because they just match up poorly right and the same thing happens with fighters as well so i think fighting has so many variables and i think that every single fight is different no matter what so it's kind of hard to actually even say that there is a perfect pound for pound fighter yeah the old mma math right yeah this guy beat fighter a beat fighter b fighter uh c beat fighter a therefore fighter (laughs) c should beat fighter b and it almost never works out that way no generally does make fights no because the sports i mean look you can you can try to make odds all day long but we all know that upsets are common in mma it's probably the sport where upsets are the most common when you really think about it. it's the hardest thing to make a successful pick on Right. It, it, it's, it is. I mean, but again, if we are going to talk that John Jones would probably have my vote for, uh, you know, best of all time right now. Okay. So what Khabib has against him is obviously mm-hmm. not defending the title enough. Uh, he's had mm-hmm. four title fights. He's defended only three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at some guys like GSP, Anderson Silva, Demetrius Johnson, and John Jones, eight, nine, 10, 11, sure. 12 defenses. And what does it mean when you're defending? It means you're constantly facing the number one contender. You're constantly mm-hmm. fighting the next guy up, the next right. best, as opposed to, okay, making well, you your look, run. You look back in the day, a guy, a guy like Matt Hughes that had a right. stranglehold on the welterweight division. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and then, I, I think the biggest thing with Khabib is he's leaving a lot of fights on the table. He has not fought Tony Ferguson. He has not fought Dustin Poirier again. He has mm-hmm. not fought Connor again. Mm-hmm. And, there's a lot of fights he's walking away from, and I get it. I respect his decision. Do you if, think he's coming he, back or no? I don't. Yep. I think he's. he's I think. He, I think he's mm-hmm. done. I think that. Hats off to him for coming back and dealing with the personal tragedy of losing his father. I still have my father, so I can't understand, begin to understand what he's going through with that, especially having that relationship they had. <laughs> father and we, head coach. Right. right. We talked about that a little bit last week on the podcast. So he yep. came back. He got the job done, and so if he feels he can't go on, he feels like he's done. He's done. But yeah, one thing I'd say about Khabib is that whatever you want to think about him, I really think he's a person with convictions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if he says he's done, he probably means it. Um, And I would think that of all the people that probably can't be lured back with money, he would probably be one that would be difficult to do based on his personal convictions. Yeah. 
Um, now and, again, and I could amount, be wrong. And where I mean, he lives and I the amount of money he already has, like that well, dude, he's a rock star. Yeah, I mean, he's a rock star anyway. But at but at the same time, um, I, I agree with you. I would really like to see the Ferguson fight. I, I thought that Ferguson had probably the best chance to beat him of all the people right now, simply because Ferguson is such an unpredictable fighter. Mm-hmm. And Khabib does very well against predictable fighters, which yeah. when you look at the last fight with Justin Gaethje, what happened was, I think that was a perfect matchup for Khabib just because of the fact that he always moves forward, that Gatesy always moves forward. When as he moves forward, he's going to fall right into Khabib's strengths, which are hard, clean, quick shots. And and Michael Chandler's mm-hmm. now in the division too. I think that would have been a great fight for Khabib. Yeah. Another really, oh yeah, really that's dominant true. Yeah, wrestler. yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. Another, lots of, definitely. Another lots of dominant wrestler defenses. with a nice overhand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, a lot of title defenses left on the mm-hmm. line that we're not going to have the chance to see. And so what a lot of the Khabib for the greatest of all time, a lot of the supporters are saying um, is uh, not only did he go 13 and 0 in the UFC, but lost maybe a Mm -hmm. round or two uh, in all Mm -hmm. of those fights. And to that, I would say Khabib 13 fights in the UFC only fought four five round fights. And we all know that Mm -hmm. there's a different strategy when you're going into a five round fight compared to a three round fight. A lot Mm -hmm. of guys, if you're fighting somebody that typically comes in a little bit heavy, they come in with a little bit of body fat, you might take an early round or two off. You might go in round one, set the tone. Round two, you might sit back, let them mm-hmm. tire themselves, let them get up on the scorecards on that one round, and then sure. you take three and four. You would never do this in a three-round fight. No, right? it's because definitely a game of strategy when it comes to five rounds. It has to be for it, sure. at that level for sure. So but, I would I would argue mm-hmm. if Khabib did defend more and had mm-hmm. fought more five round fights that you would see more uh, mm-hmm. rounds uh, given away either strategically mm-hmm. or lost because I mean, it's a totally different, mm-hmm. again, a totally different right. game plan when you're uh, planning for a five round fight compared yeah. to a three. Now, so he's only, he's only lost two rounds officially. Mm-hmm. He lost the first round to Justin mm-hmm. and he lost the third round to Connor. Right. But don't get me wrong. I am a Khabib fan. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of things that I really like with Khabib. So I'm not sitting here and telling you I'm not a Khabib fan. And I do believe he is in the halls of greatness. There's no doubt about right. that. Yeah. He's definitely a Hall no. of Famer. Oh, 100%. yeah. 100%. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, so I don't want to take that much away from him. There's just some fights I would have liked to have seen. <laughs> yeah. So we've got him, or I've got him ranked at my number two, but mm-hmm. I don't think that it's possible to overlook John Jones here, right? Mm. John Jones defended mm-hmm. 11 times, defended right. 11 times, 28 total mm-hmm. fights. 22 of those fights were in the UFC. Mm-hmm. 15 out of those 22 were title fights. Right. How many times did uh, did actually Demetrius uh, uh, defend? Because I know that was a lot too. D- DJ defended 11 times. 11 times. Yeah, I know. So he's way up there as well. And I think he doesn't get enough. He really doesn't get enough t- enough credit. Yes. I, think he just, I think it was just the strength of the division that right. Demetrius. I mean, <laughs> and, and also that, the and 125. That's not, that's, not that's not Demetrius's fault. He's fighting. Yeah. Right. Not a, but, but he stepped up. You got to right. admit. He, if if mean, he fought 10 pounds heavier, he right. would probably be number one on this list and we wouldn't even be mm-hmm. having this discussion. And then you got guys like Henry Cejudo who came in and clean two divisions out right and but then decided hey i'm, I'm done too so right but so, no, nobody liked triple c yeah. so and nobody really another dominant wrestler <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. yeah and look at anderson silva who is fighting this week 10 right. title defenses he held right. the belt for a ufc record 2457 mm-hmm. days he went on a 16 fight ufc win streak in that time mm-hmm. yeah that 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 uh record will be eclipsed by izzy you, is he? You think is, he so? is he? Will definitely? Is he's going to hold that 185 belt as long as he wants? I to. I think so too. I'm I'm with you on that. I'm real. I'm a big fan. We were just I'm talking about fan. him and yeah. Robert Whitaker again. I said right. he's going to sleep him again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
That oh man, he's incredible. He really is. He's, I told him I don't even like him, but yeah. the guy's good. Oh no, he's really he's, you good. You can't take anything away from him. Absolutely the only not. thing that I don't like about Izzy right mm-hmm. now is he's constantly chirping at John Jones, right? But doesn't want to fight him, right? He's like, I, oh, later on down the career, it's like, oh, right. you need him to be older. <laughs> they show he's older than you. Right. You have way more fight experience right. than Jones. Yeah, right. Jones but, is already old enough. You don't but, need to wait. If Izzy, if Izzy was to make a, a fight with John Jones right now, right. I think Jones destroys him. I think Jones beats him up. I, I think so too. Yeah. I, I think so too. I think, yeah, for sure. In my personal opinion, mm-hmm. especially with John Jones moving up to heavyweight now, mm-hmm. I think that's why he's holding out because mm-hmm. he's trying to see if Izzy is going to fight him. Mm-hmm. Because if not, he's probably going to get the next shot at Stipe. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's more than likely going to beat Stipe. Probably, yeah. No, in, my, in my opinion, John Jones is probably the greatest fighter who's ever lived. Yeah. Greatest like, combat sports, yeah. Yeah. greatest yeah. combat sport athlete of all time. Mm-hmm. And look, if we're even talking about just athletes, he's up there in the discussion of the greatest athlete of all time when yeah. you look mm-hmm. at accomplishments. Oh, that, God, those, uh, those, sure. those genetics in that family, what you got a brother who's like a three time Super Bowl champion. Got, like, those genetics had, are real. You have two NFL players yeah. and yeah. then John Jones. Look, guys, one thing about MMA, it is the hardest, toughest sport in the world. There, yeah. there's, there's no question about that. There is no sport that tests you as a human being more than mixed martial arts. And when you look at a guy like John Jones that has accomplished the things that he has, I mean, I would agree with that as far as athlete, which is interesting. I'm a, I'll kind of divert for a second, but to understand just how tough MMA or that type or combat sports actually is. If you look at the history of combat sports, which going back way back to ancient Greece, there was actually something called pancreation. Yep. I'm sure mm-hmm. you guys are familiar with Alexander that. the Great, right? Well, I mean, yeah, back in ancient, yep. way back in ancient Greece. Okay, so basically it resembled MMA today. Through my travels in Europe, I learned a whole lot about pancreation. And I can tell you this, that in the ancient Olympics, the pancreation, the person who won the pancreation was king of the Olympics because it was viewed even back then as the toughest sport. Yeah, like all these other sports are fine, but this guy would kick all y'all's asses. This he's, guy is the, the king leader. of the, of the, the Olympic Games. Hell Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And if you look at the history of that, it, it, it pancreation means all powers in, in Greek. Hell so yeah. while we're yeah. talking about your travels, uh, Myron, why don't you go ahead and uh, mm-hmm. give us a little little bit of your background, a little bit of your mm-hmm. qualifications. We uh, spoke a little bit earlier. Myron has been in law enforcement for as long as I've known him. You've been mm-hmm. involved in the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, Myron was actually one of the first people I met when I was training uh, some garage out in Laplace with a couple of my buddies and Myron was like, Hey, why don't you come over here and uh, join our gym and mm-hmm. uh, start doing some real training? I trained with Myron at the temple for a little while. And that was before I met Rich. And then mm-hmm. I finished my career at Gladiators Academy. So a little bit about me. I mean, I've been in the martial arts now for 38 years. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I can't remember a time in my life when I haven't done martial arts. Um, I've studied with a lot of different people. Um, I've, I've done boxing, kickboxing, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, sambo. But a lot of people don't realize that my actual ranking is in Japanese jiu-jitsu, which is something that I think is a really misunderstood art. What would you say is the big, some of the bigger differences for the listeners in Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian? Uh, the, the best way I can describe it is context. So Brazilian jiu-jitsu is designed to be a one-on-one affair, um, usually under controlled conditions. Not to say that Brazilian jiu-jitsu doesn't have its place in the self-defense arsenal, which we're going to talk about later. But when you understand Japanese jiu-jitsu, the context is a bit different because the history of it was basically a battlefield kind of deal. And it was designed to be very ugly in, in in situations that had many variables like weapons, multiple opponents, things like that. So if you understand Japanese jiu-jitsu, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's better because it's not. It's different. 
And so it, the reason I think it doesn't get a lot of respect is because people try to put it in the same context as Brazilian jiu-jitsu and say, well, Brazilian jiu-jitsu will beat Japanese jiu-jitsu. And that's generally true one-on-one. But when you're talking about understanding situational awareness, learning how to dissect a battlefield, understanding your, your surroundings and things like that in order to survive when your goal is very different than the other person's, Japanese jiu-jitsu is pretty much that. So you have to look at it from a more, I guess the word is tactical perspective mm-hmm. rather than competitive perspective. Uh, would you say that Japanese jiu-jitsu is more for the real world, whereas Brazilian is more for competition? Um, it depends on what you mean by the real world. I mean, the real world is very elastic in many ways. I mean, like a lot of the situations that Japanese jiu-jitsu was designed for don't exist today. Okay. I mean, nobody's going to draw a sword on you today. Well, I don't know. Maybe it might happen. In tw- it's 2020. It, it gets, wild. It gets wild right. in Florida. If it's it, going it, to happen, it's, it's going to happen in Florida. The Florida man will, yes, absolutely. Somewhere in the panhandle. But, it's not right. Correct. Yes. Uh, the Redneck Riviera. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a little different so, down in old Florida. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, what I'm saying is that Japanese jiu-jitsu, um, it has, it, it's an adaptable thing that can be applied today. But a lot of what it was invented for really is it's kind of out of context today. Would you say, obviously, not in age, but in tradition, as far as like a traditional martial arts, as far as it being more of a holistic experience, would you say that that's what differentiates a a big thing that differentiates Japanese jujitsu to Brazilian jujitsu? Yes, it's much more holistic. I mean, the Brazilians will tell you that because the Brazilians actually got their jujitsu from judo and Japanese jujitsu. I mean, we know that history. Mm -hmm. Um, They they just adapted it to their own purposes and their own physiques, which was brilliant. But at the same time, when you look at Japanese jujitsu, yeah, holistic is a good word because it did involve strikes. It did involve locks. It did involve throws. It even involved weapons. I mean, so when you start seeing that, it's much more holistic. And I read in, in, in I knew this personally, but I was, uh, me and Jeff were talking about this a little bit ago. Uh, you were with the United Nations for a little while in Europe mm-hmm. and y'all were like tracking down like sex trafficking rings, correct? Um, not exactly. Well, yes and no. Um, between 2003 and uh, 2000, late 2005, I was actually uh, working for the United Nations under contract. I was in what's called the United Nations CivPol program, which is we're under the the State Department of the U.S. and the United Nations, and it's a cooperative effort to go into war-torn countries to rebuild infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that for quite a while, and dealing with human trafficking was part of it but also rebuilding the infrastructure of a police force in a place that was devastated by a horrible war. So I spent a lot of, I like to say I was doing James Bond work in a Mad Max environment. Nice. Um, it was, it was, it was actually one of the, it was a peak performance time in my life. Cause I really, as dangerous as it was and as chaotic as it got, I really learned a lot from it and I got a lot from it. Is this the time when you also snowed in in Europe when you wrote the ABSAC course and things like Correct. that? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It would get like minus 20 and uh, sometimes it would snow. And over in the place I was, I was actually in Kosovo. So in Kosovo, if you know anything about it, the weather in the winter is really rough. So we would get snowed in and I decided I'm not going to just sit here. I'm actually going to create something. So And I, what did you create again? I created what was called, um, basically it was a bouncer certification course. That's the best way to describe it because I saw the need for people who actually work doors professionally, especially as I was traveling around Europe and going to all of the major cities like Stockholm, Amsterdam, Berlin, Munich, 
Paris, all these places, I, w- I noticed that the people that were working in the bars were generally a lot more, I'm going to say, well put together and much more professional than a lot of what I had seen here in as far as people working bars. Not that that we don't have some really effective doormen and bouncers in this country. It's just that in Europe, it's held to a much higher standard and they generally make quite a bit more money doing it, at least from what I understand. So I said, I was sort of inspired by that. I said, maybe we could create a program here that would allow people to elevate their abilities at a job like that. And it would be looked at much more professional than something just like, you know, oh, you're just a bouncer. Well, what were some of the big changes that you uh, wrote about? Some of the like main ideas that would differentiate your style of, of bouncing compared to like what you might see at an average bar? Um, well, the first thing is that you have to learn how to make good decisions under bad conditions. And you have to be able to do that under the scope of what the actual law is in your area. And as I taught later on down the line, which I guess we'll get into in Louisiana, the people who are working doors, I would tell you that, a ve- I mean, a I, man, I could only count probably on two hands throughout the whole state, how many people could actually talk to me about the law and what it really meant in order to more effectively be something like a doorman or a bouncer. Like what they're allowed and not allowed to do as a bouncer. Right. Well, their, their limitations, um, their, a lot of them had no idea, like, what the difference was between a felony and a misdemeanor and what it meant to actually be able to, when they were justified in, in detaining somebody. Oh, wow. And I mean, that's a huge problem. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't have that basis down, I mean, that's, that's really crazy. So I created a program that would educate them on that. It was, it was much less on the physical side and much more on the knowledge side that could give you a little bit of experience and wisdom to be able to apply it when you're doing that job, because that job is really a judgment oriented job. And you're, you put yourself at some risk too, as the bouncer, if you don't know what you're allowed, not allowed to do. I got a friend of mine yeah. that uh, got in some trouble as a bouncer, got arrested. Oh, absolutely. Before for- no question. You, I've seen so yeah. many people get arrested from doing stuff yeah. that they thought was right. Yeah, and, for sure. Like yeah. a fight breaks out and the guy right. starts fighting with him. He takes him out and kicks his ass because, mm-hmm. you know, he's trained and he's a big guy and he ended right. up going to jail for it. Like what right. the hell? And a lot of know. a lot of people who are doing that job don't realize that in court, sometimes you're going to be held to a higher standard because you have that job. Mm. Because a bar has placed confidence in you to be able to do it, you will be held to a higher standard. And a lot of people who I was educating at the time really had no idea. They did not know. And I like to think that we made a, a little bit of an impact with it, although we were kind of short-circuited politically. Um, with the course in Louisiana, which is a that's a that's a multiple hour discussion to understand how that happened. But to this day, we actually got it legislated to where you are if you are bouncing, you are supposed to have the state's certification. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And going on a little further, so you've been involved in martial arts, combat sports, and self defense. Mm-hmm. These things are all the same, but yet so so different. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let me say this about combat sports. Okay. I am in no way and I will never claim to be anything along the lines of some of our great Louisiana athletes like Rich Clemente, Melvin Gillard, uh, you know, Dustin Poirier. I don't have that competition experience. My, my experience in the martial arts from the time when I was very young, I mean, I did a lot of smoker style stuff like Mm -hmm. Muay Thai and things like that, but I cannot claim any kind of competitive record or anything like that. 
along those lines. So I want to differentiate myself right there, right now. Right. I will never say that I am something that I'm not, which a lot of people in this business will do. But I can say that I'm really passionately involved in this and I've been involved in it for 38 years. So I've got some longevity in it. And I still, to this day, I spar quite a bit, grapple quite a bit and do all those things. I'll chirp for him and let you know, this is one of the most dangerous men I've ever sparred in my entire <laughs> life. I know he's, he's, he's very modest, but it's not well, a game. He's I not mean, a joke at all. But, but what I want to say about that is like, so when a lot of the guys were taking professional fights and things like that, I was actually involved in a full-time law enforcement career. And I was also teaching full-time as well. Meaning that, like, in my view, the martial arts were, I guess you could say, okay, combat sports are important. They are. Well, I mean, that's the fastest growing sport in the world. I'm never going to say it's not. But for me, my personal satisfaction, if I was able to teach someone a little something and they came back to me and said, you know what, something that you taught me saved my life. To me, that experience and that feedback was more important than just getting in a ring and, you know, swinging with a bunch of guys, which took a whole lot of time because I had a full, you know, like I said, my full time career, really, I had no reason to jump out of it because we all know that when you first start in the fight game, it's basically like a starving artist kind of deal. Right. So I didn't have any I didn't have a good reason to do that. But and my passion was more training people, regular people how to develop skills that I knew that they could have, but make it usable in a sense that they could protect themselves if, if they really depended on it, if they needed to. I remember a couple of years back when the, uh, the knockout game was a, was a real big thing going on. I don't know if you guys remember that when guys were walking down the street and they'd run up and try oh, to I remember try, to, try to sneak in and knock you I out unconscious. It. it still goes on. <clears throat> I remember you and I had a conversation at one of these fights and you were telling me that you're like, Hey, a great self-defense program, you'll never be caught unsuspecting like that because of how you are. It's like you were talking about right. how guys, like a simple thing you, you told me is like how often on a cold night in New Orleans walking through these windy buildings, you have your hands in your pockets. Mm-hmm. Like that's the worst mistake you can make because you can't defend yourself when your hands are in your pockets. I think one of the worst mistakes that people make when it comes to getting, I guess you could say hit or mugged or snuck or surprised is they're using their phone. That like they're walking mm-hmm. down the street using their phone. Yeah, the, the the cell phone is probably the single greatest focus lock I've ever seen in yep. my completely life. Completely unaware they, of they their are completely unaware of their surroundings, and so many people get victimized and mugged and robbed because they're on their phone. And the craziest part about it is, if you start looking into some statistics where people do get attacked or do get mugged, it is normally in transitional areas, like in parking lots, in parking garages, in um, like stairwells and do, things like that. Why do you think that is just an easy escape for the perpetrator? No, it's generally because that's where the person isn't really paying attention. Like it, you're not going to get mugged inside the mall, right? You're not going to mm. get mugged necessarily. You can get mugged in your car, but it's unlikely as opposed to from the mall to your car. If it's after hours and you're in that transitional place, you have things on your mind, what you're going to do next, you're fumbling for your keys or you're looking at your phone. It's the perfect time. It's the perfect time. Public bathrooms are another time that you need to really be aware, especially on road trips in like, uh, you know, shady areas when, when you're driving through places, transitional areas. And if you're on your phone or you're not paying attention in places like that, you become a very easy target. Let me ask you, for mm-hmm. just a person that's concerned about their general safety or well-being, what do you think is the best thing 
a person they've never trained before. They're mm-hmm. maybe a little bit out of shape, right? But they're they're legitimately <clears throat> worried about mm-hmm. their safety. What? Right. And I know this is a difficult question, right? Because it's probably there's probably a bunch of things that you would need to to say or do. There's yeah, there's the some variables thing, to it. The one thing that you would say: do this, and in a few weeks you will be safer. You will feel safer. You'll be more confident at protecting yourself. What do you think it would be? If I had to break it down to its base level, I would say learn how to box. Boxing does the most with the least. It boxing is probably the easiest martial art to teach, and I, I do consider boxing a martial art. Um, the thing about it is. You can do so much with just a jab and a cross. If you understand the good mechanics and stable stance and a good jab and a cross, you can, that can get you out of 90% of trouble that you might get into where someone is attacking you or wanting to attack you but is not hoping for that kind of fight. So self-defense has to be distilled down to its simplest level. The second you start adding all kinds of different transitions and things like that are very technical. A person that's under real stress is not going to be able to do that Mm -hmm. because their fine motor skills shut down because of the element of surprise. And so the thing about MMA and the thing about combat sports is that what's happening to you is quite different because you're prepared for it. Like it's not a surprise that you're going to get punched in the face in the cage. We know that. Or when you go box or kickbox. So the thing is that you can retain some fine motor skills, even though your adrenaline is high, because you don't have that fear spike to the same level as somebody has when the fight is unplanned. So I'm not saying it's not scary to step into the octagon. Of course it is. But it's not the same thing as if you're walking with your kid to your car and then someone jumps out in front of you and now you have a confrontation that you did not prepare for. You don't know if this person is armed. You don't know what's going on. And it literally hits you out of the blue. So the fear spike that you'll experience from that is very different. So in self-defense, what you need to be able to do is something that is so simple, but yet with conviction and with no hesitation and at the same time, judgment. Based off of the explanation that you just gave, I've got a pretty good idea of how you're going to answer this question, but okay. let me just put it out there. Yeah. Because, you know, myself with my history and what I've done, and I think if you you would ask 100 um, mixed martial artists or 100 guys that are into the sport what they think the best defense mm-hmm. would be, they would say Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? And, and until this discussion, mm-hmm. I would probably say that as well. Why would you go boxing over BJJ? Okay, I would go, you asked me self-defense. Yes. And there's a difference because... Let's put it this way. Blunt force trauma wins fights. All right. Yep. Blunt force trauma wins quick, spontaneous fights. If you got online and you started looking up people getting in fights, you can find a lot of examples of spontaneous fights that are ended by blunt force trauma, by unexpected, committed blunt force trauma. Now, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is much better when you're talking about something that has the context of restraint. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. If you work in a psych ward, Brazilian jiu-jitsu all day long, you, boxing almost has no place, right? If you work in law enforcement, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, generally. If you're an EMT, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, absolutely, right? Now, law enforcement has a place for boxing as well. But at the same time, when you tell me self-defense, I'm going to tell you it's context-oriented. And in the real world, if you take somebody down, because that's what you're prone to do in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and there are variables that you can't control like other people. Like their buddy trying to soccer kick you while you're in go. Right. That's a, that's a problem. Now, again, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, one-on-one controlled conditions, yep. one of the kings of this, 100%. 
But again, you can't call that self-defense. Right. In fact, I would almost not call any, any fight where you agree to participate in self-defense. It's right. really not. Self-defense is what happens when there's no consent. Surprise attacks. Yeah. And so here's the other thing about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, too, is, and, and combat sports in general. Do you guys know what the number one difference is in training for self-defense versus training for combat sports? Tell me what your opinion is on that. Combat sports, you're looking to get into a fight. You're looking to test the mm -hmm. abilities that you've gained, whereas mm -hmm. self-defense, you have these abilities, but hope you mm -hmm. never have to find out if they I, work. I mm -hmm. would say the venue, fighting on concrete versus fighting on a, on a mat. Okay. A mat. I'll simplify it for you. The goal of each person is different. So here's what I mean by that. In combat sports, if we're going to have an MMA fight, we both have the same goal under the same rules. I'm either going to submit you, I'm going to win by the judge's decision, or I'm going to knock you out, or you know, submit you, whatever. But our goal is identical. Same thing is true with boxing, judo, jiu-jitsu, sambo, any of the combat sports. There's no combat sport that I'm aware of where people have different goals. Whereas in the self-defense world, my goal might be to get in my car or get away from you to get in my car, whereas your goal might be to grab me and throw me to the ground. Or if it's a, in the case of like a female or a woman where they're trying to pull her into a van or something like that, she has a very different goal. And so when you understand training for self-defense, you can manipulate that to understand how to create scenarios so that your training is better. So the thing is that when you walk into the octagon, that is totally consensual and you have the same goal. But if I'm training you for self-defense or I'm training someone in law enforcement or I'm training someone in security or something along those lines, very often... It, that is the bottom line. The goal is different. So what should a person be looking for when they're looking to be trained in self-defense? Because you have so many of these things you see on Facebook where you have these guys with their superpowers or they're trying to teach you how to do that sing solar plexus instep stuff yeah, where, they, so, where, they, where they grant you that false sense of security. So self-defense is a minefield of bullshit. Like it is, there's almost nothing in the world. The only thing I could think about that might even be close to the amount of bullshit is something like hypnosis. Like hypnosis is real. It, it is a real psychiatric tool or psychological tool. But the problem is like the, the people who really understand it are few and far between. And like the people who say they, they do it are, are very numerous. Whereas the, the same thing is true with self-defense. Almost any clown can get up there and claim to be teaching self-defense, but the problem is they're not doing it in such a way that's going to be effective because there's no bar to prove that it works, kind of like in combat sports. Mm. So, like, here's here's a good example, and I, I don't want to pick on Krav Maga because there are some really there's some really yeah. good practitioners of Krav Maga, but but let me use it as an example, and I think most good legit Krav instructors would agree with me on this. Most things that self that that claim to be teaching self-defense are actually demonstration arts so what that means is the way you train is a scripted demonstration yeah. that you do over and over and over again and i, I think this is demonstrated best by uh, the evolution of mixed martial arts oh 100 right? you find out yeah, which ones totally. work and which ones but you can apply the learning principles of mixed martial arts to self-defense if you understand what to do so for instance like here's a good example you could go online, you go to YouTube or go anywhere like that. And you start looking at some of these, these defense videos, self-defense videos. And like, you'll see a million comments that say, Oh my God, that was beautiful. Does it work? Like, or you see like some kind of crazy, you know, Kung Fu video. Oh man, that was great. Does it work? Does it work? Does it work? 
But what you will never see is you will never see a high school wrestling tournament on YouTube where comments that say, high school wrestling is great. Does it work? No, because they're wrestling. The same thing is true. With, I mean, you could go to a 14-year-old's a amateur boxing tournament, and you, it, it, there's nobody going to be in the crowd go, oh, man, that's pretty. Does it work? Right. No, because they're boxing. Yeah. So the thing is, when you understand the, the learning principles of combat sports and you start to apply them in the context of the, where the goal is different, <laughs> it's actually easier to teach. It's actually, and it, it, it gets the person to a place where they can, they can really apply it rather than just do a demo over and over and over again. Now, one of the problems with that is that the demo gets you gets either YouTube or Instagram views and stuff like that. And people are really easy to fool with this because they really don't have a proper context to compare it to the average person. I mean, if you think about how many people in the United States alone train in martial arts versus the population, it's a very small number. Yeah. And so most people that would look at something like that, they won't see, they won't understand the context and they're not even prepared to have the right conversation because what they're looking at appears to work. So like, if you ask me, do punches work? Sure. Do knees work? Sure. Do elbows work? Sure. And I watch a Krav demonstration and all those things are present. The problem is that the person doing them is generally not capable of doing them because all they've done is demonstrations. Mm -hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And Demonstrate I think, with no resistance. Yeah, and, and, and I think in a any type of free market, and we can say that like, okay, mixed martial arts is kind of a free market, right? Because you've got sure. things that are in uh, free competition with each other. And if you want to test the efficiency of anything, whether that be an idea or a business, put it in a free market in competition against others, and the ones that are better <laughs> succeed. I think competition is the best thing in the world for martial arts yep. because it makes everybody get better. You should not be aggravated with stupid dojo politics. If somebody opens up down the street from you, you should actually see that as an opportunity to get better. Right. I've never in, in my entire career teaching, I've never not welcomed another martial artist who has the right credentials to open up around me. I mean, my God, I would think that's wonderful. Cause you know what? I'd be training in his classes too. I'm always open. I always want to learn. I'm like an eternal white belt. Right. So when you look at it that way, it, it, yeah, I agree. It's definitely a free market thing. When I was trying to do the eternal white belt thing, they told me I was sandbagging. <laughs> Sandbag. <laughs> a right. totally different idea of the oh, eternal oh, white yeah, belt. I got it, I got it, I got it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's no, what they told definitely. me I could not compete at white belt anymore. Right. Yeah, I, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that mixed martial arts has brought to uh, martial arts in general is like, if you want to do demonstration style stuff or, uh, you know, Taekwondo or Krav Maga mm -hmm. or something like that, that's fantastic. But right. what but what mixed martial arts has done is it's shown people sure. what actually works and what actually works right. most efficiently. I, I believe that there is so I believe that you can look at martial arts, combat sports, and self-defense kind of as three circles that converge sort of in the middle, but they're not all the same. So they they have elements of each, but there's a place for martial arts. So for instance, I'm going to use, I'll use Tai Chi for an example. Okay. We know that Tai Chi, you're not going to win fights using Tai Chi, yeah. right? But it's, it's placed in the context of a martial art. Okay. But I've actually visited China in uh, 2003. I was, uh, before I went off to the UN gig, I, I spent about a month in China. Jeff lived in China for a little while. Really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I lived in Sichuan province for about a year. So when you so see 2003 is a totally different China. Yeah. Oh, when I was no, there in 2016. I, I, I totally agree. I, I'm not get, but what I'm saying is this, that in China, when you see 
hundreds of people doing Tai Chi in a park that are elderly and they're moving way better than most people in this country, the quality of their life is better because of this. So it's truly valid when you put it in that context. They don't need to be out kicking anybody's ass. No, it's not, it's not about that, but it's still a, it's a heritage martial art. Like Aikido, people tell me, oh, it's useless to do Aikido. I'll tell you, it's not useless to do Aikido because Aikido teaches you movement. And, and here's the thing. Can you take Aikido and put it in the, in the context of MMA? No, not at all. But if you're 55 years old and you're doing Aikido and you're falling and rolling and you have the limberness of your joints because they're constantly being stretched and moved, there's a benefit to that. So it's a heritage martial art. So if you look at it in that context, there's nothing wrong with it. But you can't, it's apples and oranges when you try to put it with combat sports. It's not the same thing. It's like what you said earlier. It's about what your goals are. Yeah, it's not the same thing. So um, I think it has its place and I think it's going to evolve like martial arts. Uh, uh, here's another great example, capoeira. Okay. Capoeira is one of my favorite examples when I look at this kind of stuff, because if you do capoeira and you do it to a decent degree, you're going to be in shape. There's no question about that. Your mobility is going to be off the chart. And if you do it into your old age, which you can very much do, because if you see some of the Brazilian uh, uh, professors of it, you're going to see like these, these people can really move around. There's definitely a place for that. And, and I would never knock anybody for doing it or make fun of them for doing it. But you just have to understand that it is not the same thing as a combat sport necessarily. So you said earlier that, that martial arts are kind of necessary for a thriving environment. Uh, what, what did you mean in that context that it's necessary for a thriving modern world for martial arts? Because... All right. There's a book that's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Have yeah. you ever heard this book? Yeah, okay. new book. Jonathan uh, Haidt uh, yes. was one of the authors. Who He's he's doing all kind of stuff right yes. now with everything that's happening in 2020 because it's so products of things that he's been saying for the last year If or two. you look at what's going on in the way kids are being raised nowadays mm-hmm. in the coming generation, they're not going to be able to handle anything for themselves. They can't handle confrontations. They can't handle... Even the simplest things, they have everything has to be done for them. I mean, you know, there's an old saying that basically says that, and I think it, the saying is actually in the book, if I remember correctly. You know, you have to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Yes. Right. And the thing is, the martial arts do that. There's, if you think of martial arts, they are, and and I'm gonna put combat sports in this as well because this could be boxing, this could be kickboxing, this could be MMA, jujitsu, judo, any of the the combat sports that have that that dovetail into martial arts. The thing is, at the end of the day, they're character development tools, all right? A lot of people enter the martial arts through the gateway of self-protection, but realize that it's actually a gate to self-perfection. And so when you stick to that and you understand that and you train this way and like you don't get a participation trophy and you train for a long time and you grind out in the gym and you realize how mortal you actually are because you're going to get tapped out, knocked out, knocked down, like... So you learn how to use these experiences of failure, not to be um, like um, lessened, but actually it's, it's a tool of growth. And like nowadays, a lot of kids are so afraid to fail at anything because they've been coddled so much. The martial arts is the perfect vehicle for that. It's a very humbling experience. It, oh, a hundred percent. The you- first time you go into a jujitsu gym and get handled yes. by somebody, 
there's no experience like that. You'll or lose, a boxing gym. You'll you know, lose more thing. times on your first day oh, than what it, most people do their entire lives. Life. And, and of course. That's what they said. What they had like and, some crazy statistic about what jiu-jitsu gyms, like how many people actually make it to blue belt. Sure. And oh, then, yeah. then the drop off from right. blue belt. A purple belt is insane. Yeah. Once you get to purple, you're kind of good to go. Yeah, but until then, it's once somebody gets their purple belt, <laughs> yes, they're into it. Like they they, they 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 bought the cow. Yeah, for sure. But what I'm going back to though for kids today, like if kids were if if martial arts, if real martial arts like judo, jujitsu were like part of a high school curriculum, man, we would have a different country. So I really believe. Myron, that. you're a parent. If anybody's listening, maybe they're already a parent and expecting parent. And you've got a martial art to tell them, hey, get your child involved in this as early as possible. They can only do one. You said boxing was for just everyday self-defense. What martial art would you say, hey, get your kid in this as early as possible? Wrestling and, and jujitsu. Um, or wrestling or jujitsu, depending on their school or what you have available in your area. And why is that? Because children, children naturally wrestle. Like they grab each other, roll around and do stuff like that. It's a natural thing for kids to do. It's something that if you start to understand it and you let them grow with that, it, it it's going to be nothing but good. And it's also that since there's no striking, a lot of parents are more comfortable with it. Um, but it is at the end of the day, a full contact art that you can do a hundred percent and you can do it with a relative degree of safety. So you do get to test yourself from a very young age and both gi and no gi, and you start to compete in tournaments and things like that. That's wonderful. That's great. For it brings that mental toughness real young. Sure. Yes. Now um, I'm going to say Brazilian jiu-jitsu or wrestling. Uh, I, I think they're both equally valid. Um, I, Cause I think they kind of do the judo. I'd put judo in there as well. I mean, anything that's an established grappling art that, you know, that, that you could do. So, yeah. And as far as like with you with your law enforcement career, like you touched on a little bit earlier, you said jujitsu, and with the with the scape of the world that we're in right now, uh, with law enforcement and people resisting arrest, do you think that there should be some type of legislation that requires jujitsu for active law enforcement members? Because I've heard it said uh, from my buddy Scott, who's a slide LPD. Sure, he said that even he said become a blue belt, you're a superhero on the street. It depends. Uh, I don't think you'd ever get any legislation like that based on the fact that most police academies in the United States are so disparate in their requirements and right. things like that. Yeah. Each state is completely different. So when you start looking at something like that, you would literally have to do that as a very, very small case case by case basis yeah. you could you can't you, there's no way you could issue sweeping legislation to do something like that. So it has to be kind of like like a like a department by the very localized agency by agency yeah, totally thing. totally i mean i would actually think believe it or not i think you do better with wrestling and i'll right. tell you why because wrestling is more accessible right. so if you start thinking about like all right think about how many high schools have high school wrestling right all right you start looking across the nation high school wrestling is very ubiquitous it's everywhere right mm. so you could actually take high school wrestling coaches and start applying that into things like security training law enforcement training much more so than I think Brazilian jiu-jitsu because there's really like, there's just more of it. Yes. Um, so it, think about this. How, how difficult is it to, to really find somebody very good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu? I mean, right. you know, it's, they're pretty rare. I mean, and for a reason, but high school wrestling is much more time tested when it comes to being available. Yeah. I'm not saying it's more effective necessarily. It's, it's a, it's not a comparison. Well, you, you, you it's an availability. Yeah. Thing. You can't compare reality with your idea of perfection right. or, or, or with, so, with some hope you have to compare it with like what, 
what what's in the real world right, right. now? Like the ideal well, situation might be, yeah, like every cop's got to be a purple belt or something like that. That's but, never going to happen. But in reality, the need, it, the, the, so, the, the demand outweighs the supply so yeah. much that you kind of take what you can get, right? right? He's got a clean criminal record. He can move around a little bit. He's somewhat agile. Sign him up because we just need you that badly. I mean, law enforcement is a rapidly changing thing. And I think that even in the next 10 years, it's going to be something that's hard to recognize from what it is today and what it was back in the like 1990s. Change, do you think overall positive in the next 10 years or it's going to be? I'm actually, opt I'm optimistic. I really am. A okay. lot of, a lot of people are not. A lot of people think, oh, it's just falling apart. I, I actually, like I tend to look at everything else. I look at it through the lens of it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to reinvent the profession and make it different and make it better based on a changing society. What changes like, do you think we'll see in the next 10 years? Ooh, I think I'm going to get off of the martial arts for a second. If you want to talk about that, what kind of changes I see, I think you're going to see a lot more integrations with like things like facial recognition. That's going to quickly give an officer an identification of someone who's possibly dangerous. Okay. So not going through the whole, I, can I have your ID? No. I think, well, I'm telling you to give me your ID. So give it to me. So no need for that. Just if you start looking at what's going on around the world, people talking about the surveillance state and things like that, not going to get conspiratorial. It's not about that. I'm just saying that there's a lot of converging technologies that are going to come together to make law enforcement probably a lot more effective quickly. And it's, it, I mean, there's a need for it. That's there's good for you. That's good for me. For that's good for oh, the it's good police for everybody. officer. Yeah. It's good for everybody. Um, so when you start looking at it and you start understanding it and you see the convergence of those technologies, and then you see what better training really looks like on the more defensive tactics angle, you can make a much, much, much more effective uh, law enforcement officer. So right? the, uh, I read something the other day. It's like the average officer gets like maybe four hours of defensive tactics a year. It depends on the department. And again, like one, it's kind of like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other one. Right, right. I mean, like all these agencies are vastly different. So you, re and this is part of the problem is that there is no uniform standard across the board. Right. So, so, you, so you can't take like a, a, take a ruler and go, hey, they're doing this in California, you can't. but New York's doing this. Good. And, yeah. and then when you, really, when you really look at it, I mean, policing in California is a different thing than policing in, say, Florida. Right. I mean, and, and I'm not trying to make a good or a bad comparison. I'm just saying different communities have different needs. Right. And different communities have different makeups. They have different geography. They have different populations. They have this. So it's a different kind of thing. Like policing in Europe. When I was overseas working for the UN, the, the policing in Europe is done on a very different kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if you if if you understand, like, all right, my view of law enforcement, it, it you can break it down to three things. Um, as complex, it's probably the most complex job in the world, by the way. But if you understand it, you can break it down to three things. You can break it down to respect, protect, and connect. And so I'll explain what I mean by that. You have to respect all people. If you don't, you're in the wrong job. You need to start with respect. If you, if you can earn and give respect most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you will never have to do anything that involves force. Now, the next thing is you need to understand what it means to protect the community, to be a guardian, to understand that. So your responsibility, respect, protect, and then connect. Because what law enforcement is today, it's actually a situation where you are sort of a go-between between, between social services and, uh, and people. So a lot of times law enforcement officers are the ones that actually have like an initial assessment to connect someone to a service like a shelter 
or maybe some kind of uh, mental health care or something like that. So you have to understand what it means to connect the community and be a connecting point in that community. So that's kind of the essence of what you might call com uh, community policing is to know your neighborhood and know all of that, that kind of stuff. So, and I, th I think that the most people kind of like martial arts when they look at police officers, they actually have a view of what's on TV rather mm -hmm. than what the reality really is. They have a Hollywood view sure. and, and you hear this a lot. It's like, well, why didn't you shoot yeah. him to incapacitate him? And like nobody in the history of well, guns has ever shot to it, incapacitate. When it gets to so, shooting, you're past the incapacitation right. stage. I mean, put it in the same context of martial arts, like somebody who watches John Wick, right? Okay. Yeah. John Wick's great. I mean, that's a demonstration thing. That's, that's, that's awesome. It's, it's cool. But at the same time, it's not reality. Just like if you watch an edited version of some law enforcement show or you watch like law enforcement fiction, it doesn't mm -hmm. give you what reality is about. Yeah. Same thing with like the medical field, right? Because 99% oh, yeah, of, of what people know about it comes from television right. and television right. isn't, their job isn't giving you the truth or like an accurate depiction. Right. Their job is giving you what's exciting sure. and what's, what's cool and, for you. And that's very different from about, what, about getting and, in views. Yeah. And so, so not even about law enforcement, but about all of this that we've been talking about in general. One of the obstacles that I see in today's society is that people have completely 100% lost their attention spans. And so it's almost impossible yeah. to truly explain something that is a concept with a lot of moving parts. So if it doesn't fit into a 20 second soundbite, you, you're pretty much going to lose a lot of people. And it doesn't mean that people are stupid. It means that people are processing information differently because of their digital devices. So if you look at that and you understand how that's going, you may say that's good. You may say it's bad. But at the end of the day, to, to explain a complex topic to people like martial arts, because we know is incredibly diverse, it's very difficult to do. The same thing is true with the military. The same thing is true with law enforcement. The same thing yeah. is true with, like you said, medicine. I mean, you cannot explain to the average person because they're going to lose you in 20 seconds. Yeah, and I think we have a propensity to simplify uh, complex things. And I'm sure 200,000 years ago on the plains of Africa, while we're concerned about one or two things and one mm -hmm. of them is being eaten by a lion, right. then yeah, simplifying a complex situation was incredibly mm -hmm. beneficial. And if we didn't have the propensity mm -hmm. to do that, mm -hmm. we're not sitting here having this conversation. However, in the year 2020 and complex civilizations that mm -hmm. humans are living in uh, with in huge numbers, right. we, we, we get ourselves into some pretty precarious situations in a situation that's extraordinarily complex and we've got that primitive need to make it as simple as possible. And we make these generalizations that mm -hmm. because of these generalizations and the simplification of the problem, we're only able to offer very simplistic solutions that do almost nothing right. because they, because we didn't address anything to do with the complexity of the situation. Oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. And I mean, you know, what's, what's another example of that education? Yes. I mean, education might be the the top of that list. It, when you start and look at what's going on in the public schools today, I mean, oh, my God, it, it's it's scary. It really is. And if you talk to teachers that are longtime teachers, a lot the change is so rapid right now when you start talking about technology and you start talking about how people learn and things like that. I mean, my God, it, it school is outdated. It's outdated like it, yeah. and it's going to become outdated every six months. As you see how things like, I don't know if you've ever been, have you been in VR yet in like a good VR rig, like the Oculus Quest or Play, anything like that? PlayStation uh, 4, I've been on one. Hell yeah. Okay. Tell me that's not going to change everything. Like, seriously. Have you read uh, Ready Player One? Of course. Oh, Absolutely. my goodness, man. I think Ready Player One is a really interesting um, discussion on some of the things that are important in the future. 
But I will say this, again, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think something like VR is actually going to bring social skills back. And I'll tell you why, because you're going to have something like a personal telepresence that's going to require you to have some etiquette rather than just texting or typing on a screen. When you text and type on a screen, a lot of times the context is completely gone. Yes. So it's much more difficult to be able to do that. And it's very easy to shut somebody off or, or do something like that. And you have a propensity to say things that you might not say in real life. But if we're doing something like a VR kind of meeting, my social skills kind of have to come back because there's going to be much more, there's going to be a, a more emotional investment in what's happening. So I think that as these technologies get better and we get more connected, I'm hoping that you're going to see that be an improvement when it comes to that. So switching gears and going back mm -hmm. to the martial arts self-defense thing, what do you think is the biggest reason that the, that the average Joe goes, I need to learn self-defense. I need to learn how to protect myself or my family. Why don't they go out and achieve that? I think one of the things that I see the most when people come for self-defense, it's they just had kids and they realize that, you know what? I, I have a different priority now. Right. And so I get quite a few times when parents come in and say, I, you know, I, I need to learn how to protect myself because I have a family now. And so if, there's nothing that changes a person's priority quicker than having a family. Right. And so you start to realize very fast that you better learn how to protect yourself and them because you start looking around in the world and you look at your baby and you're like, man, I, if I don't, if I'm not able to do that, something bad could really happen. Yeah. If not me, who? Yeah. Right. Now that's a very true statement because I mm -hmm. just had mm -hmm. a baby who's almost three months now. Right. And my girlfriend now has, she's very tiny, very much, eh, whatever. Mm -hmm. But as soon as this all happened, she was like, Hey, I think I need to take a basic pistols course. I think I need sure. to get a concealed carry. And I was right. like, absolutely you do because her mindset changes. Mm -hmm. It's not just me anymore. Now I have this little pelican everywhere that mm -hmm. I have to take care of. Right. So on the context of concealed carry, I'm very much, I'm a hundred percent in support of the second amendment, but I am also very much in support of proper training. Yes. I don't think that you should be carrying a gun if you have no training. Right. And I also think that if you are carrying a gun, even if you have training, that you also need some combative training. Because very often, in order to deploy your gun in a real situation, you have to fight the person off first because it is surprising and spontaneous. Yeah, and it's going to be close quarters it, almost always, right? Most of the time, it's going to be close quarters. And when you start looking at the variables like the environment involved and things like that, you better be able to free yourself from that confrontation before you might deploy that, that pistol or whatever you're carrying in order for, if things really escalate. So... Again, it's a different topic, but at the same time, it fits in. Right. So I have a lot of people now that I work with privately as far as I, I have a thriving private lesson business right now. It's doing very well. And a lot of those people are concealed carry uh, people. You want to tell us about your private business? Like what, what's going on with it? Are you doing martial arts? Is it... Uh I don't know, uh, so, firearms. Like what, no, what all like do you have what going I'm, on? Nah, what I'm doing, uh, the shirt I'm wearing, you see Courage Combatives when, uh, when Mushin closed. Mushin was a situation we, man, we, everybody loved Mushin. It was great. But the, the realities of business in 2019, 2020 is that the overhead was too high. It's, that's the simple answer. It wasn't any kind of bad chemistry with anybody or anything like that. It was just that the reality was that the overhead was too high. So we had to split up and move and do some things differently. So I went over to Charlie Heyman's over at New State, which is a, a NOLA affiliate. 
And um, I mean, I've been with NOLA for years and years, way back to the body, mind, spirit days. Those of you who have been listening to this or knowing all of us for a long time will remember that. But um, I mean, I've been with Matias and all those guys for forever. So I went straight to Charlie Heyman's place and I started teaching and I started what's called Courage Combatives. Um, Courage Combatives is basically a company that has no brick and mortar. So I provide group classes for New State, but I also do workshops in different public places. I also do in-home workshops. Um, I do private lessons both at New State and in different environments like parks and things like that. And um, I have a person working with me who you guys will meet. Or I, I think you've met Angel. I've uh, met Angel. Angel. Yeah. So Angel is my, um, I'd like to call her, she's one of my one of my most dedicated students. And I would call her my assistant. And she also has part ownership in Courage Combatives. Angel is a an entirely different story, which you guys will learn more about. But um, we are, we're doing quite well, like I said, for like different workshops and private lessons. And the majority of what I'm teaching is very simple things to people that have no experience because they want to get this experience and they want to start understanding what it is to actually protect themselves. So I'm not teaching like some complex, crazy, you know, uh, hybrid system. It's not that I'm teaching basic boxing, basic clinch work, things like yeah, that. You're not doing heel hooks. No, no. First class. We're talking about, I mean, how, how do you protect yourself? If somebody swings on you, how do you protect yourself? If somebody's trying to pull you into a van, something yeah. like that, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just something with humans in general, they've got this idea always that they're better off at protecting themselves than what they probably are. Right. Or, or that Ooh, it the, is the ability most. to fight is something that you're born fight, with yeah. or something that's innate. The Fighting. ability to fight well is something that's innate. And you learn very quickly for, <sighs> when you go against somebody who's trained that there's nothing innate about it. So are you familiar with what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Okay. Look up the Dunning-Kruger effect. What it is, basically it means that the less competent a person is at something, the more inclined they are to exaggerate their ability at it. Fighting is the king of Dunning-Kruger. When you start looking at Dunning-Kruger and you start realizing it and, oh my God, like so many people will start a fight without having any idea how to fight. Yeah. And it's the, it's the craziest, stupidest it, it, thing in the world. And it's the most dangerous thing it's in the, the world for both It's the most dangerous thing you could possibly for, for do. For him and the person he's fighting. I'm going to tell yes. you what probably comes a close second to fighting when it comes to Dunning-Kruger, and that's riding a motorcycle. Um, there's so many people that's, oh, I'm going to buy a motorcycle. Oh, really? Well, why, where'd you learn how to ride a bike? Oh, well, I, can, I can ride a bike. I can, I can attest to that because mm -hmm. I was told I have several friends who ride. That's mm -hmm. why I got a bike. And I was told, you're going to take the class? I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I watched like a YouTube video. Yeah, I got right, it. Right. Within an hour of buying a $28,000 bike. No. Totaled it. Oh, my God. Totaled I was thrown. I was thrown over the guardrail. I was on a service road on I-10 in between uh, Reed and Crowder, right? Reed, right. Reed and Bullard. I was taking that turn. Whiskey throttled. Hit the curve. Was thrown over the fence. I landed five feet from landing flat onto the I-10. Right. But, like, put something, put it in this context. Like, think, how long does it? take to become a like let me just throw something out there like a professional architect i mean like that's that's pretty involved right? there's like the old malcolm gladwell ten thousand hour thing uh, right that. i mean it takes a long time to get good at something like that well fighting is the same thing i mean you know you've seen people train for years and years and years yeah. to get good at fighting but why is it that fighting is this thing that we're just drawn to this idea that i've got it you know it's something that i've born with I, i've never so, done it or i've done it twice in the schoolyard but Still today in my 40s, I can kick your ass. I'm going to tell you Why? what I think it is. 
I think it's because it's a primal part of our past. If you look at hunter-gatherers that we evolved from, primal fitness, like running, jumping, fighting, swimming, climbing, things like that, are things that are kind of hardwired into us. And I think that fighting is one of those things that we've been forced to do way back in the ancient past. And there's a part of our, our brain that wants to click into that and say, I can do this. And, and I think that, again, that's one of the things that makes martial arts so special is because it does tap into that primal thing. Yeah. Do you Definitely. think fear has a play in that with that peacocking is I, I don't want to fight, so I'm going to peacock myself so I don't have to fight? Uh, peacocking is it, it, it can serve. Yeah, usually what it's trying to do is make someone back down, um, but it's sometimes not successful. Now, the thing, too, about this, though, peacocking, when you look at that again, that's not really in the realm of self-defense. That's more a consensual fight. Right. Like. So if two guys are peacocking and out in a bar parking lot, that's not self-defense. Yeah. It's not. You've chosen to do that. You've chosen to put yourself in this position. Where do you stand with consensual fights? You think they should be allowed? I know in some states they, they are, are Louisiana. Allowed. They are allowed. Louisiana, it's, it's if, all right. As long as it's not in public. Like if, if you and I have a problem and we go on private property and we're sure. not in view of the public, we can. What about a Walmart parking lot? We're away from cars. We're not causing any damage. Mm, so no, I know that some would state, still be considered in public. I know some states have the mutual combat law. Yeah. You can and call the cop. The cop comes out. And you guys want to fight? I don't know. And that, and that's Honestly, what I'm I, I don't know like, uh, right. as far as that, because like, that's that's certainly not true in Louisiana. We're not going to yeah. go. The law enforcement is not going to go referee. you. No, no, no. So I'm not talking about calling yeah. law enforcement. I'm just right. saying you're in. I don't know, the parking lot somewhere and you get in, you think that's something that you should be arrested for or yes. as long as yes. how come? Uh, uh, foreseeable, like foreseeable damage and injuries that would, would, would well, but, but it, it falls into the realm of negligence. Okay. So if you really start understanding like we know how dangerous fighting can be incredibly, if you don't know what yeah. you're doing, I mean, look, you could be a great, mixed martial artist or a great fighter and i hit you out of context and you hit your head on a car or a car yeah. mirror or something like that i mean if you're gonna have consensual fights man do it in a place that is set up for it yeah. it's really that simple i mean now that would require some self-control uh obviously and a lot of people don't have self-control but if two people decide to fight I, I still would support it being illegal if it is in the context of a public place. If it's in the Walmart parking lot, that's a public place. Okay. If it's in someone's living room, well, that's, that's, that's a private place. Right. Okay. So when you look at it that way, I mean, I, I'm not against consensual fighting, but I'm also not for it in the context where negligence can be involved right. and the variables that people won't think about when emotions are very high. Yeah, fighting on concrete when you oh, see it like on uh, YouTube yeah, or something right, like that is right. the worst thing because no. you can be a 16-year-old kid, just one punch, you sure. knock him out, he hits his head, and he's dead. I mean, that is... Sure. And, and, so, and, it's, and it can happen. So that would it, all, it can totally can happen. the negligent yeah. homicide? Uh, probably would, yeah. I mean, depending on the, the circumstances. But I mean, I, I can tell you that I've seen I've seen so many bad things happen when I people cringe fight. watching videos of people fighting even if they're just boxing and they're on right. concrete it's like dude just move it to the fucking grass man right. like that's that's a world of difference <laughs> yeah I mean I mean it's laughable actually I mean but it, it is but it isn't it's one of those things it could be death it could, it could be. be death it, it could be you, you somebody catches you with a jab sure. and you lose just you, sure. you snap out for a second I mean, and go back and well, hit your head right L let me ask you this is it possible that any punch can kill somebody absolutely of course 100%. I mean, you could be 
the, one of the best fighters in the world. You just get caught right. And it, of course. So it's just not worth something like that. You have to look at risk versus reward. And I mean, in the context of self-defense, self-defense is when you choose not to fight but have to. Right. <laughs> right. Or a more, I would say a more sophisticated version of self-defense is when you actually start to learn how to predict what might become a situation like that. Because if I could teach you just a very limited few things, like a little bit of boxing and a whole lot of awareness to understand what to look for, like an, an example would be pre-assault cues, right? Uh, knowing when, like when it's kind of a reliable indicator that somebody's about to hit you, right? Like something, knowing how to look at something like that is very important. Also, understanding the environment for what it is. One of the one of the terms that I really don't like because it gets thrown around all the time is situational awareness. And so I think situational awareness can only really be present if you put it in the right context. So in the context of self-defense, situational awareness means knowing what to look for that's dangerous or potentially dangerous. Okay. So your brain has something called your reticular activating system. I don't know if you know what that is, RAS. Your reticular activating system is basically, some people call it like the red shoe effect. If you buy a pair of red shoes, you then start seeing red shoes yeah. everywhere. Right. So your brain it's begins like when you, like looking. like when you buy a car and you start noticing that car exactly. everywhere on the street. Well, the thing is, like when, when I tell you and you're a little bit trained of what to be aware of, you start to see these things in everything. And so you can make better predictive judgments based on what's happening in the ebb and flow of your environment. Whereas a lot of people with no training... Oddly enough, they, they, they're not able to spot those things. That's kind of like what you told, told me that one time, I, I think we were somewhere and you were like, you carrying? I was like, yeah. I was like, how can you tell? And you were yeah, like, uh, I just notice. <laughs> I, I look right. for imprints. I know who's carrying a yeah, weapon. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean. And I was like, am I carrying sure, it wrong? You were like, sure. no, no. I just saw it. <laughs> but like sees how you're going into a room and looking around, just no. your, your mannerisms. Like, yeah. I mean, also too, if, if I'm about to get into a confrontation, like there's a couple of things that I would that I teach people to do. Number one is to become aware of your breathing. Now, I know that sounds really abstract and crazy, but breathing is the bridge between your mind and your body. When your mind does crazy things, then your body does crazy things. And when your body does crazy things, your mind does crazy things. It's like an infinite loop. Right. But breathing is the bridge to be able to actually gain management of that. And so breathing is actually the key to fear management when you start understanding it. So there's, there's basically a psychology of fear and a biology of fear, all right? And the thing that links them is breathing, okay? So becoming aware of your breathing is one of the first small victories that you can do to be able to control yourself so that you can make good decisions under bad conditions, right? So do you think that's learning to understand and accept the fear and to use your fear? Is that, fear? is that a part of self-defense? The fear isn't going to go away, but your ability to act can seriously be affected by, again, a like a, a rhythmic regular breathing cycle. There's a reason they have something called combat breathing. And soldiers use it, policemen use it, firemen use it, a lot of first response. Any doctor, I mean, like medical people use it too in a high stress situation. The thing is that Again, you have to have the clarity to make the right decision with the right judgment. And the way to do that is to understand how to short circuit that biology of fear and the psychology of fear, because fear can really freeze you up 
in much different of a way than you might if you're entering a combat sport. Again, it's scary to step in a cage, but it's not the same thing if you have your, you know, your five-year-old with you and you walk into your car and then all of a sudden you have this confrontation that you didn't ask for. Right. Very different situation, right? So when you understand that and you realize how to manage those things, that's really a big part of self-defense is learning that and understanding it and learning how to put it into play. So one thing I teach people in workshops, I tell them the way to practice this. If, if you think about daily life, one of the things that throws you out of your comfort zone most often is driving. When you're driving, somebody does something crazy and it pisses you off and you become angry. The first thing you need to do is become aware of your breathing. So you start to set an anchor to where when something starts to go amiss, you immediately bring your attention to your breathing. And if you do that and you calm it and make it rhythmic, you're going to find that immediately with a little bit of practice, it happens faster and faster, often within a second or two, where you now have control of your faculties much better. It doesn't mean that you're not afraid. It doesn't mean that you don't have that spike of adrenaline and fear and chemicals that jolt through your body when this happens, but it puts you in the driver's seat and it puts you, when you understand it, it puts you in a challenge mindset rather than a mindset of where you have no options. Right. Right. So that's something to think about. So do you do situational training as well where you set up scenarios that they have sure. to navigate through and yep. things like that? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And how do we, how does, how does the, our listener contact you about this training? The Facebook, Instagram? Um, yeah, you can. So I'm on Instagram at MYGA1123. Um, that's my Instagram handle. Uh, also, I'm on Facebook everywhere. You can go to couragecombatives.com. Um, I'm on that website. I also run a Patreon site with Angel. Um, it's patreon.com slash courage combatives. And for a very low fee, like 10 bucks a month, I put almost all of my lessons online. Perfect. So I do that. Um, again, courage combatives is really thriving when it comes to that. And when I think you guys may at some point in the future have angel on, she'll elaborate more on some of the projects that we have in the future. Yeah. Jeff and I were talking a little about her earlier. I was giving him kind of a snippet of the, mm-hmm. what you've told me about her background. And I think she has a, a, va- a very amazing mm-hmm. story that our listeners would thoroughly enjoy hearing. Yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, I admire her a lot, man. Um, When you see what she's overcome to become what she is and is becoming, I mean, she has a horror story of a childhood, and I'm not exaggerating. And when you hear that from her and then realize that now today she's a professional stunt actress and what amounts to a professional martial artist, I mean, it's it's just an incredible transition. So, and she is really inspirational for that. And I guess lastly, switching gears are more of a light topic. You've been an MMA ref in Louisiana for how long now? Oh, geez, since like the middle 90s, since really since the UFC started. Oh, so you've seen <laughs> some some major fights in this. What would be, I know, I know it's do, a- Do you know how I became an MMA referee? Did you ever hear that story? No, I didn't. Okay. So going way back when, when MMA first started in Louisiana, Louisiana was actually one of the first states to sanction MMA. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And by the way, yeah, I would have thought it was, I thought it was yeah. Mississippi because Mississippi, no. they, they just do whatever over there. Well, but not Louisiana supported MMA from the very beginning because they, they, the commission really kind of saw the future of what it was going to be. Um, now at the same time, I was involved with training in martial arts, like forever, even at that point. And so a lot of the people that started to fight in Louisiana in MMA, I had coached or trained with almost all of them. And since I had that nexus of connection, when the first like old reality combat fight started, everybody wanted me to referee because I knew everybody and they thought I would be fair. 
And look, way back when, that was a learning experience. We did not, I mean, we made a lot of mistakes. I mean, and as we learned over the years, it got better and better and more and more refined, just like the sport itself. Like what were some of the mistakes that you think oh, were man, being late, made back? Late stoppages. Back I mean, thing, like we, it took a while for us to kind of unify what it was we were looking at. Um, it, it was different than anything else. And it was very different than referee in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or wrestling or boxing or something like that. I like to tell people that in MMA as a referee, in boxing or kickboxing, you have to know when to intervene. That's what makes you a good referee. In MMA, you have to know when not to intervene. And if you, if you think about that statement, not intervening often is the key to someone's comeback victory to know to have the wisdom to not intervene, to realize that this person is still in the fight, even though it appears that they're losing. Because there's certain body language that you learn as a referee when you just know or don't know when someone's done. Yeah. They may or may not agree, but I mean, I'd like to believe that over my career, I've made mostly the right decisions. We heard from someone recently, I think it was Griswold out in Mississippi, yep. saying he looks at the eyes, <laughs> right? And you can tell the eyes and eyes. the eyes and the, uh, I think their gait is another good example. Like when you start seeing people's gait, yeah. It, it's just like um, the expression that they're yeah. making with their jaw and their mouth. Right, right. Yeah, you can tell when someone's done. It's uh, the other thing is when they go from defensive to submissive, and submissive usually equals something like a fetal position kind yeah. of deal. They're usually done because that that is deep wired in their nervous system is as a submission. I think one of my very early fights as a ref, uh, we I was doing one of Justin Burden shows down at Homa. A guy came out, hit him with the hook. The guy turned completely around on the fence and curled mm -hmm. up. Right. And we got took like two shots, completely turned around. I stopped the fight. And he's mm -hmm. like, why did you stop the fight? Right. I was like, dude, you turned completely around. Like you weren't interested in this fight at <laughs> no. all anymore. Well, here's my take on like stopping fights. I, I, you've heard me say this in fight meetings. I tell them it, it is almost always better if I stop your fight a little too early than a little too late. Yep. Because if I stop your fight a little too late, that means you're going to the hospital. And if you're fighting as an amateur, you're not making any money, and now you can't go to work because you're injured, it's just not worth that. I've, I mean, heard, I've heard Mr. Ricky say it a thousand times, yeah. our fighters go to work on Monday. Right. And, I mean, safety is the number one thing. When you understand that's also true when, when you train. Safety should be the number one consideration. You know, the right gear, the right, the right control, the right setup, everything. So in your plethora of fights, and I know this is going to be a big question for you because your Rolodex has to be huge. What was your favorite fight you had the chance that you had the chance to witness live in MMA in Louisiana? Oh man, that's a challenging question. <laughs> I, knew, I, I knew it was really going to be a big question have for to you. Rolodex that, um, man, <laughs> you're going to laugh, but like. Some of the most exciting fights are not necessarily some of the top fighters. That we we've talked about okay, that before. So some of these amateurs get in there right. and get it, boy. Like I can tell you what was a really exciting fight that I was totally stoked for was that was Josh Quay Hagen and Ton Lee. Yeah. Um, that was amazing, man. It, the way that that happened. Um, so that's one. Another thing I'm going to throw his name out there and, you know, you might look at him as anything Josh Davila fights. In. Yeah. It's that like, man, he's, I mean, I did really, his, I'm a fan of Did you of see him. his last fight with Calvin Hackney? I don't remember. Oh, I bloody remember. It was recently. It, it was yeah. bloody. Man. <laughs> Those two dudes went to right. war. I have a ton of respect for that guy. 
I mean, just for he, it's not that he wins all the time, but man, he's game all the time. Yeah. Um, and a great guy inside, yeah. outside the cage, right? You, you know, I'm so, so, and, and I know like a, a lot of people might not expect to bring a name up like that, but at the same time, it's exciting to watch that guy fight. That was like my, you my know? personal favorite it's, fighter and a, not a, not a superstar yeah. name, but JC Pennington. Oh yeah. Still uh, to this right, day. Right one of my mm -hmm. favorite fighters to ever watch. Right. Win, lose, or draw, that dude came to fucking fight, and right. you might beat him, but right. you're going to know you were in a fight the next day. He, That dude had no quit in him. Absolutely. He never won. Uh, Brock, Brock Carey was another one. Right. You, Brock Carey was that uh, Tim Crater uh, summed him up best. He would right. absorb punishment sure. and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Right, right. Um, uh, a lot of AJ's fights too. When yeah. you look at AJ, I mean, I'm, I really admire AJ. Man, he's he's come such a long way. Yeah, we've uh, we've officially crowned him the next king of Louisiana. He's got to uh -huh. be the next guy to make it. Yeah. He's fighting November seventh on the next Atlas card as well. Right, right, man. Yeah, definitely. I could say a lot about him. Um, just just going back over the days. I mean, some of the fights that I've seen. I mean, every, everything from, like, seedy ballrooms all the way up to the UFC. I mean, So what was it like watching a young Dustin fight uh, in his early, in his amateur, early in his amateur career? Did you know he was going to be the guy? No, I really didn't. I, honestly— what, what were your impressions of him? Was it just a, another fighter? or Yeah, just another fighter at first because at the same time, you had so many other people that were up and coming. I mean, when he was up and coming, think of who we had. We had Clemente, we had Melvin Gillard, we had Pat Barry, we Sean had people Jordan. like that, Sean Jordan. So they kind of eclipsed him, and he came kind of out of nowhere. It, it's not that I didn't recognize his talent. It's just that there were so many other people to focus on, it was hard to see that coming. Tim, right? was, still, Tim was still actively fighting when he was fighting. Yeah, absolutely. Kyle, Kyle Bradley right, was right. still fighting. So, yeah. I believe that Louisiana per capita has, has to have yeah, it's gotta be. some of the top. I mean, we, we probably have produced some of the, the, the top caliber MMA people anywhere. Yeah. I mean, anywhere in the world. I mean, you look at Cormier, you look at Poirier, you look at all these guys, Rich Clemente, you look at, uh, at Tim, I mean, all Pat Barry, all of these dudes, they all come from Louisiana and Louisiana is a very small place on the MMA map. But I can tell you this. I had completely forgot that you used to train with Pat Barry until uh -huh. you said that. I remember when you told me that that story you said before uh, before fights in the back when they had Pat warming up, they used to hold Louisville sluggers and let Pat kick through them. Pat, they, they said had one of his opponents in there one time, saw him do that, went and told a promoter, like, I'm, I'm, not, not, fighting. I'm not fighting this yeah, dude. I'm, I'm fighting. done, man. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, yeah that, that was actually a kickboxing fight. Sure. I, I think it was in Atlanta, if I remember correctly. But, yeah, man, Pat kicks so hard. He kicked so hard. It was unbelievable. Um, they called him the hardest kicker in the world at, at the time, right? He wasn't able to, you know, follow up on his career. And, you know, he got with Rose and stuff like that. So, it was, uh, but I have nothing but respect and I'm great friends with Pat to this yeah. day. So he's always a fun guy too. Oh, yeah. He's Absolutely. always he's hilarious he to talk to. He's one of those guys that was always one of the most personable fighters I've ever met. Right. Didn't matter who you were. That's what you hear from if everybody, you, how nice he is. Right? If you how knew nice. who Pat Barry was, and even if you didn't know him, but if you recognize him and you were like, he was always a sweet guy. Welcome. Hey man, sure. you're a big guy. He would talk to you. But if you could say, Oh, you're Pat Barry. His face would light up, and he was like a kid in a candy store. He would talk to you for hours. Funny thing about Pat, and Pat would agree with me, you know Pat is terrified to get in a street fight. What? Absolutely. Pat oh, has man. told me that many times. He's like, man, he goes, I'll fight in the ring all day. He said, but I am terrified to get in a street fight. 
And I don't disagree. I mean, that's a reasonable thing to say. I mean, that's crazy because I've heard stories from other people that are really good friends with Pat that when he first got with Rose, like he Mm -hmm. was, he was, she was coming up and they weren't making much money. So Pat would take fights in the UFC, Mm -hmm. no training camp. He's like, I didn't even care if I got knocked out. Said I would go in there, fight, make money so Mm -hmm. we can continue to train. So to hear that he was scared to get in a street fight is like... Mm -hmm. Man, but I guess, you know, there's so many other factors, like you said, like you don't, you don't want to go to prison because you you break somebody's neck and you let Pat Barry hit a regular guy in a bar. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a tough night. Something else, uh, as far as self-defense that I I didn't mention earlier, but I think I should, is that there was a time, um, when I called, I was bored one day and I decided me and my old boss, uh, we were, we were talking about martial arts and about how people are claiming to teach self-defense. So I I got the phone book and I started calling different martial arts gyms around the state. And I started asking them, you teach self-defense? And they said, yes, we do. And I said, okay. I said, can you tell me where to find Louisiana's law on self-defense? And I called roughly a hundred places. And do you know how many people could tell me? One. I believe if I remember correctly, it was some school in Alexandria. The guy said, well, of course, I teach self-defense. I have the law RS 1419 posted on the wall. All my students need to see it and understand what it means, because if I'm teaching them this tool, they need to know how to apply it in a legal way with good judgment. I was like, that is the correct answer. Right? One of the first things I do when I teach people is teach them what the law actually is. And um, and if you're teaching self-defense and you're not doing that, you're doing your students a very big disservice. Wow. I mean, the gap, it just seems like there's always going to be that gap. But what we can do with good training and being more knowledgeable is constantly try to bridge the gap, trying to bring it closer. Correct. Absolutely. Oh, man, it's been great talking with you, Myron. I think we've learned a lot here. Definitely uh, excited to get Angel on and listen to her mm-hmm. story and everything. And, guys, uh, we give Myron the uh, – the biggest recommendation, definitely look them up, Courage Combatives, learn how to protect yourself, you and your family. These are things that every person should have. These are tools that the average person should have because mm-hmm. as effective as you think you may be in a fight, if you're not training, mm-hmm. I promise you you're not. No. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, my personal Instagram is MYGA1123, and we have also Courage Combatives on Instagram. Just look that up. It's one word, and you can follow us. So, and you'll see Angel as well. When she comes on, she'll actually give you her, all her handles and all too. Yeah. Myron, this has been absolutely amazing, man. Incredibly insightful and pleasure to have you Mm -hmm. here. Do you want to stick around? We're going to talk about UFC fight night hall versus Silva coming up this Saturday. Nick and I are going to give some picks. You've been around the MMA and combat sports scene for as long as anybody. You want to stick around and I'll stick stick around and talk a little bit about it. Uh, Again, I'm not that familiar with this card because I've been, had a lot going on lately because I've been super busy, but go ahead. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, we'll be right back with our picks for UFC fight night hall versus Silva. Welcome back to the Fight Sport Focus Podcast. Jeffrey Hoffman with Nikki the G, Nicholas Sherlock, Myron Godday still in studio. We're going to go ahead and look at UFC Fight Night Hall versus Silva. That's happening this Saturday, Halloween night. Myron, you got anything special going on for the conclusion of spooky season? 
Uh, Halloween, uh, Halloween's my favorite holiday, man. What y'all got uh, going on at the Godet uh, household? I don't know if it's going to be at the household, but Halloween this year is, I believe it's daylight savings time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a full moon. Yep. Um, it's a Saturday night. And it's and, a 2020. And it's 2020. But uh, yeah, so Halloween has a lot of potential this year. Um, normally for Halloween, I generally, I'll go to different parties, different things like that. I've also been to quite a few pagan festivals that are, um, that are, uh, basically Samhain, which is the history of Halloween. That's another story. But so, um, I can't say, I don't, I don't know if I will or will not be watching the UFC, but I will have lots going on. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if they were fans in attendance for this fight, yeah. right, that would be right. a great show. Oh, absolutely. At. Yeah. First up on the main card. We've got Bobby Green taking on Tiago Moises. Green is the minus 270 favorite. Moises comes in at the plus 210 dog. Moises actually fought for Atlas fights back in 2015. He fought against Jason Knight uh, here in Mississippi. So I don't remember his name. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with him, but I thought I Brazilian guy fighting out of Florida. And mm-hmm. as Atlas does, they get guys from Coconut Creek mm-hmm. to come in. So yeah. a little bit of a local connection here. Okay. I'm going with Moises by decision. Nick? Uh, I think I'm going to go with Moises by submission. Mm, Calling out the sub? I think so. Wise call. Next up, we've got Maurice Green taking on Greg Hardy, right? Ex-NFL pro bowler. The Prince of War, a.k.a. the Kraken. (laughs) Big big fan of Greg Hardy. 6-2-0 with one no contest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hardy's actually coming in a pretty heavy favorite here at a minus 315. Green, the plus 245 dog. I'm going with Hardy, man. I think he's going to get it done early. Um, That's typically how his fights have gone. He lost that decision to Volkov uh, maybe in his last fight, right? So it's either he's getting it done uh, early or, yeah, he might uh, lose a decision. I think uh, he's got more than enough here to take out uh, Maurice Green. Yeah, I think Greg Hardy with the heavy hands. Yeah, he's getting he's getting better. He's getting better every time. He's a natural athlete. It's just taking time, just time to develop. Sure. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah. And the third act here, we've got Kevin Holland. Taking on Mahmoud Muradov. Holland 19 and 5. He's the minus 165 favorite. Muradov is making his UFC debut. I'm going with Kevin Holland. He's uh I've talked with him a few times. He's a friend of the fight sport focus. I think he's gonna get this one out. Nick. I think I'm gonna go Kevin Holland as well. Just super athlete. I think he's on the rise right now. Yeah, and he's fought some uh, really good competition since he's been in the UFC. Yeah, he hasn't had a cakewalk. Yeah, he's won six out of his last seven. And look, he's uh, beat John Phillips, Gerald Mearshart, Anthony Hernandez, Joaquin Buckley, who got that crazy head kick knockout over uh, Impa Kasaganai two events ago. I remember and, that. That, that. That was pretty. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also uh, Darren the Dentist Stewart last. So, like, Kevin Holland mm-hmm. has been knocking – taking out some huge names. Mm-hmm. I think he's got uh, more than enough to get it done Saturday night. In the co-main event, dude, we've got Andre Feely taking on Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell. <laughs> this fight was just announced, I believe, last week, so yep. it's a, a really nice treat to have here on Halloween night. Uh, Feely, 21-7, and seven, but he is the plus 140 dog. Bryce Mitchell, a perfect 13-0. He's coming in at the minus 170 favorite. Not only am I picking at, Mitchell. They got him at 13 and one. Yeah. So Google's got it all fucked up. I, I don't know why Mitchell Bryce Mitchell is undefeated. Okay. M- maybe they they've got a little bit of the mystic Matt going on and they're going to, Oh, okay. They're predicting uh, my pick to be wrong here, but 
I'm going with Mitchell. I'm going second round submission. And hear this, gentlemen. Hear this. I'm going with the second round twister. Second round twister. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, this is why, because he's got only the second twister in UFC history, right? right? But he, he's fought in the UFC three times. That fight, uh, fight of the night performance against Bobby Moffat. And his second fight, uh, he got the twister. And the third fight against Charles Rosa, he was inches away from it, like three or four times in that fight. Super close to locking it up. I'm calling it, man. I think <laughs> I'm going to go. I, I agree with you. I think Thug Nasty is going to get it done in the first round by submission. All right. Okay. I don't think Andre has the takedown defense to stop Bryce. On to the main event, guys. We've got Uriah Hall and the look bidding a farewell to one of the greatest to ever do it. Anderson, the spider Silva, Uriah Hall, 16 and nine. Uh, he's entering this fight. The minus 225 favorite. Silva, 34, 10, and 0, uh, plus 175 dog. It's going to be a bittersweet night, I think, right? Watching Silva for the last time, but probably most of us watching would have hoped Silva, that he'd gone out a couple years ago. Silva had a reign of terror in the UFC like no one before him. He was one of the first real fixtures of a knockout artist that just could not be stopped in his prime. Yeah. And for old time stake, I'm going Silva by knockout. So you think all things considered Silva's, he knows this, this is his last fight. Yeah. He's going to go in there and get it done. Yeah. Like, like they would say in the water boy, he can't hold anything back. He can't hold it back. It's time well, to go. I, I think he was really affected by that horrific injury that, uh, that we saw. <clears throat> I know we say he healed and all that, but at the same time, when you suffer something like that, it does psychological damage to you. And at the same time, I, I, while I respect him so much for coming back, I mean, obviously you can take nothing away from Anderson Silva. He's absolutely a legend, Hall of Famer. But at the same time, I think that I, I don't really see him coming through in this. I really don't. And it, like he said, it's really bittersweet because right. I'm really a fan of Anderson Silva. Yeah, so Anderson got robbed in the Bisping mm -hmm. fight because they should have stopped that fight because mm -hmm. he knocked Bisping unconscious at the mm -hmm. end of that round and they yeah. let him wake Bisping up right. and then come back. And then Anderson had a phenomenal showing against Izzy. I mean, Izzy right. could not put him away and he put right. everybody else away. Oh, no, I'm not taking away from his yeah. the, the possibility of this. For sure, anything is possible. But at the same time, I think Hall probably has a little more horsepower at this point yeah. to be able to, to put him away. Yeah. Do you I'm think uh, so what I, my what I think is going to happen? I think Hall is going to be more aggressive. Yes. Trying to put yes. him away. Yeah. And I think Anderson still got a little slip left in him just to slip and rip him. And I'd like to see it. I'm in. not going to lie. I'd like yeah. to see uh, it. I what mean, a way I'm to not, end, I'm a fan of them both. What so. a way to end a career. Yeah. Anderson can knock someone out. Sure. I'd love to see Anderson Silva get the victory here. I, I agree. I one agree. of those Chris Lieben 64 hit combos <laughs> to the face. <laughs> but let's let's face it. I, I I don't know that we've ever seen a fall from grace. In any sport, right? Nonetheless, MMA than what we saw from Anderson Silva. I mean, we had what we talked about it earlier—the 2,400-day reign as middleweight champion, 16-fight win streak—and from 2006 to 2013, mm -hmm. he was absolutely invincible. Yeah, right? we we had never seen anything like I mean, that. He even, I mean, even in the first Chael Sonnen fight, like he proved he could take a beating and sure. he will still absolutely. fight. Uh, and then with the Chris Wyman fight, the first time, yeah. I, the first fight with Chris Wyman, I think Anderson was lazy and I think he was playing with Wyman and had yes. his hands down and got caught. And that was it. it and then this, mm -hmm. and then in the rematch, when he came back, the, the horrific injury Myron was referring to was when mm -hmm. he threw that keg yeah. Yeah. and, uh, Wyman aggressively checked mm -hmm. that kick yeah. and broke his leg. That yeah. was a picture perfect check that was done. I mean, that, that was very calculated. Yeah, and, you still have yeah. people chirping online saying Wyman didn't break his leg. No. 
Myron is <laughs> the Muay Thai guy here. He'll tell you that. No, Wyman broke his leg. <laughs> Absolutely. And harping on that fall from grace. I mean, yeah. you see with a lot of guys who maybe they're getting past their prime and they'll lose a few and, and they'll get one back here and there and they might lose another and get one back. And we're not seeing that from Anderson Silva, from that yeah. one punch from Chris Weidman. As you said, he's kind of yeah. Anderson Silva with his hands down, which he did often toying with Chris mm -hmm. Weidman. And uh, it was one well, it was a left hook that caught yep. him, uh, knocked him out. And since that punch, since that punch, uh, Silva's won one fight. And that was in 2012. Yeah, yeah. it's painful, man. It's painful to hear and see. Because uh, as much as I am a fan of his, uh, I mean, there comes a time in the fight game, though. I mean, as we age, it's, you know, it's, yeah. ti it's time. Yeah. It's Father, just time. Father time, undefeated. It, it, exactly. I'll say this, and, and this is in no way really designed to be directed at Anderson Silva, but you remember in Rocky when Mickey said this is the only sport, or maybe Rocky said it, he said this is the only sport when you're guaranteed to end up a bum. Like if you, if you yeah. continuously keep pushing the envelope like that when you get older and older, I mean, like, bask in your victories be the legend that you are and and stick with that you gotta mean, know when to live, hang it up. live your life yeah and but again I'm, I'm not saying i'm not excited to see him fight <laughs> absolutely do you think that the last seven or eight years has done anything to tarnish the legacy of anderson silva no i don't think so because i think of what he is in his prime i mean you know what i'd give you a good comparison of fedor okay fedor had some losses at, at the end yeah. do you think that tarnished his legacy no i don't I mean, I, I'm looking at both of them as just legendary in their status. But I, I agree that just from a personal health standpoint and a personal well-being standpoint, I mean, it might be time to just say, okay, I'm going to be the legend that I am. I agree with that statement because just like Dan Henderson is one of my favorite fighters. Right. When I think of Dan Henderson, right. I don't think of the law. I don't think of Daniel Cormier suplexing him. Mm -hmm. I think of him knocking out Fedor. Right. I think of him viciously knocking out people in pride. Sure, I think sure. of him throwing that – uh that F line elbow smash into Bisping's face. Mm -hmm. I think that was the end of Bisping's career. Right. He took some, he took some years off Bisping's life with that mm -hmm. shot. Yeah, I think so. All right, Nick, what else do we have, man? Oh, uh, that's it, man. We don't have any local MMA fights this weekend. Uh, just the UFC and uh, Halloween and, and that's Halloween, it. Man. And we will be back next week with Scott, the Irish Spartan O'Shaughnessy, who will be taking on Dalen Wilson at Atlas. So um, good show next week. Uh, so till next week, once yeah. again, Myron, thank you for coming out, being a part of our first live studio guest. We much really appreciate you being here. I appreciate here. you having me here. Yeah, thank you so much, Myron. It's been great. 11th episode of the Fight Sport Focus podcast in the books. Guys, don't forget, follow us on all platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Fight Sport Focus, and visit our website, fightsportfocus.com. New episodes going down every week, so subscribe to and share this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hoffman. This is Nicholas Sherlock. Thank you for listening.